This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I'm speaking with prolific author and engineer Ward Silver, N0AX. Good afternoon, Ward. Hi, everybody. <laughs> In the November 2021 issue of QST, you're there as a co-author with Frank Donovan, W3LPL, on an article about the beverage antenna. And I had totally forgotten until I saw your article that this is more or less the uh, centennial of the beverage, isn't it? Why, it's exactly the centennial. Um, yes, the patent was granted in 1921, although for sure he'd been experimenting with long um, receiving antennas, uh, part of the uh, transatlantic communications uh, uh, community that was such a big deal in the early 20s. And they'd been looking for ways to increase the signal to noise ratio in various ways. And um, They'd been experimenting with long wires, and uh, Beverage discovered several important things about long wires and wave fronts, and uh, thus the Beverage antenna was born. What can you tell me about the man who has the unfortunate luck to have a surname that they probably mocked him for his whole life? Yes. How would you like to go junior high with the last name of Beverage? Well, <laughs> uh, the, uh, you know, he experimented um, uh, several different uh companies and agencies and at the time this was all uh rocket science brand new exciting stuff and so harold beverage um uh latched on to the the physics of wavefronts and uh antennas and was able to imagine this is way in the days before easy neck and um all sorts of other visualization tools um what the what the signals were doing, what the wavefronts were doing, how this interacted with the antennas, and um, was able to make a practical antenna out of it that uh, really worked in a lot of different situations. And uh, it was quite an advance for the time. So he was quite a remarkable guy. I remember hearing about him and the beverage antenna even back when I was a novice, although I had no clue at the time what it was. But is it fair to call it strictly a receiving antenna ward? Yes, it's not used for uh, transmitting. It's uh, quite an inefficient um, antenna as far as um, uh, if you tried to transmit through it, how much you would actually get out. A lot of uh, your energy would go into heating the earth. But that's not what it's designed for. It's designed for noise rejection. And so to improve the received signal to, signal to noise ratio, um, and it actually has quite a low gain, but, um, it's, like I said, it's, its purpose is not to have a lot of gain. It's to reject noise. And that does fairly well. In your article, you refer to it as a traveling wave antenna. Can you expound upon that a little bit? Yes. Um, most amateur antennas are resonant antennas. And so you want it to be a quarter wave or a half wave or some integer multiple or fraction of a wavelength that sets up standing waves on the antenna and, um, uh, 
that's how the signal is radiated or received. But a traveling wave antenna is not resonant, and it depends on the interaction with a wavefront going by. An incoming signal um, travels along the antenna or uh, at some angle to the antenna, and that interaction between the electromagnetic wave and this conductor is what develops the signal in the antenna. And it's not um, a resonant. It doesn't depend on uh, resonant effects. It doesn't have to be one wavelength or two wavelengths. Um, it's strictly a um, an interaction between a, a, an electromagnetic wave and a conductor of some some sort. So the, the wave travels along the uh, conductor but it doesn't actually set up a resonance. I tend to imagine it as though there were waves traveling through the air like waves of water and they strike the antenna end on. And is, is that a fair analogy or no? Yeah, I, I frequently use the analogy of wind blowing across water. And as the wind blows across water, uh, some of the energy in the wind is uh, picked up by the surface of the water and it builds up this wave and so it's very similar the electromagnetic wave travels um, along the antenna and builds up this voltage wave in the uh, in the antenna that is eventually transferred to a feed line so it's it's a, a very similar kind of thing in the article you and frank also uh, invoke wave front tilt and there's even a diagram to go along with it can you explain that Yes, um, the electromagnetic wave is um, composed of two components. There's an electric field and a magnetic field. And what causes the voltage wave in the antenna is the electric field. And the electric field has to be aligned along the wire if it's going to uh, induce a voltage in the wire. So the more the um, the uh, wave is aligned with the axis of the wire, in other words, along the wire, the bigger the voltage wave will be. Now, I have to have some caveats with that because it depends on whether the um, incoming signal is horizontally or vertically polarized, as the article describes, and it's kind of hard to uh, describe in an audio discussion without diagrams. But basically, uh, when the wave arrives at the antenna it's been reflected from the ionosphere so it's coming down out of the sky it's got a little bit of a tilt to it if this is a vertically polarized wave if it was traveling perfectly along the earth the electric field which determines polarization would be straight up and down well the wire is uh, back and forth and so they're at right angles there would be no voltage wave but because the incoming signal has been reflected from the ionosphere, it's got a little bit of a vertical angle to it, 10, 20, 30 degrees. And so that tilts the wave a little bit with respect to the wire. And that uh, allows you to look at the incoming electric field as having mostly vertical, but a little bit of horizontal. And that little bit of horizontal is what causes the voltage wave in the antenna. I hope that makes sense. Oh, it does. In fact, Ward, that's one of the best verbal descriptions of how a beverage functions that I think I've ever heard. Well, I had to go back and read a lot about beverages. I, I wrote an article in 2004 QST about a pair of two-wire beverages that can be switched to receive in any direction. So I had a basically a four-direction 
array of beverages. They were kind of short, but they were sort of effective. And to write that article, I had really figure out how does this thing really work? And so if you read the article, you can see why it prefers to receive vertically polarized signals coming in from the ionosphere in the direction of the wire. Every other direction, whether it's uh, uh, or polarization for that matter, are more or less rejected by the antenna. And that's how it rejects noise. It only receives uh, signals from this one direction at a, pref a preferred angle. And so uh, it sort of has this little cone where it uh, it works the best. And if you aim that cone in the right direction, well, how about that? You get uh, a better signal to noise ratio. You might get more signal on your transmit antenna, but you also get so much more noise that you can't hear the signal. And that's uh, why you use beverage. I think the first time I saw a beverage antenna in the flesh, so to speak. One of the things that astonished me the most was the fact that it was just a few feet above the ground. Is, is that common? That's the, pretty much the way they work the best. The beverage um, antenna, what you see above the ground is only half of the antenna. It creates a, an electrical image um, equally spaced in the ground below it. So what you really have is a two-wire transmission line with one half being a real wire and the other half being this electrical image. And so it's a leaky transmission line that uh, picks up the signal. And uh, if the antenna is too high uh, or if the ground conductivity is too good, these are, these are things that uh, when you talk about transmitting antennas, you want the antenna to be high over excellent ground. Well, for a beverage, you want it to be low over medium to poor ground. That's where it works the best. For a beverage, though, how high is too high? Well, if you start making it uh, more than about 20, 30, 40 feet, it starts to lose that image um, under the ground and uh, doesn't work as well. So anything from, you know, uh, you can lay them on the ground. There's a thing called a beverage on the ground or BOG uh, that has some effectiveness, but the optimum height seems to be anywhere from 6 to 15 or 20 feet. I can tell you from personal experience, you want it to be 1.1 uh, antlers high if you have deer running around, <laughs> or uh, if you string it over a uh, driveway, it has to be 1.1 UPS truck high. Don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> well, I also noticed the first time I saw a beverage is that the thing was extraordinarily long. I think I was looking at a 40-meter beverage at the time, and I believe it was something on the order of three or 400 feet. Yeah, they, the, they work best. Um, in the one to two wavelength range. That's where you get the most improvement in your signal to noise ratio. And um, if you, they start getting much longer, like out to five wavelengths or longer, uh, they start to basically self-interfere. That was something that Frank Donovan brought uh, to the article that Frank has a tremendous amount of experience with beverages and uh, knows a lot about these second and third order effects that make an antenna work better or worse. But they can be too long, in which case uh, you start to lose their effectiveness. Uh, anything up to uh, half wavelength or longer will work. Are they most commonly used, Ward, on 160 and 80 meters? Yes, um, 160, 80. Uh, if you've got a, a lot of land, you could use them on 630 meters. Um, but on 80 and 160, they are uh, the best antennas 
um, out there uh, in terms of performance and cost, and they just take up a lot of land. Uh, there are some uh, small vertical arrays and some variations on the beverage, those small loops uh, that give pretty good performance, but nothing is really beating a, a beverage. I guess it goes without saying that your transceiver must have a separate receive antenna input? Um, that's the preferred way to do it. There's also some um, external antenna switches. Uh, DX Engineering makes one. I think MFJ does too. Uh, that I think the 7300, ICOM 7300, is a very popular radio but does not have um, an external antenna jack. Well, the uh, DX Engineering external receive antenna switches to take care of that and use the push-to-talk or the amplifier keying output from the radio to uh, uh, control which antenna your receivers are listening to. Oh, okay. And I think I've seen some beverages that, I, I could be mistaken, I thought had a terminating resistance, or am I imagining things? They all do. Um, just like any transmission line, um, it has a characteristic impedance. Um, when I talk about the voltage wave that is developed along the antenna, that can come from either direction. The wire doesn't know which um, direction it's pointed in. So a signal from either direction along the antenna can build up this voltage wave. Well, basically, you want to receive from only one direction. So by placing a terminating resistance at one end that's about the same as the characteristic impedance of the uh, beverage antenna, the wave that arrives from the back, that voltage wave is uh, absorbed in the resistor. So that's why that's why they're on there. If you see a two wire beverage um, or if you have one beverage with a feed line at each end, you can use some relays to switch things back and forth and uh, receive from either direction. If I recall, and I believe the article mentions this, there's a bidirectional beverage uh, construction piece in the ARRL antenna book. Is that right? Yes, there is. And then the 2004 um, article in QST by yours truly. Uh, I think it's called a cool beverage four pack or something like that. You couldn't um, resist, could you? No. <laughs> Resistance <laughs> is futile. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, uh, I think it's actually provided as part of the uh, antenna book supplemental information, but it describes how a, a two wire beverage made out of um, regular old window line um, works. It's really pretty neat. I can imagine. Now, here's your ignorant question for the day. Why can't I have a beverage on bands higher than 40 meters? What about 20? What about 15, 17? You can. Um, the, uh, the issue is that you can get much better performance at those frequencies and higher frequencies with regular beams, and uh, there's a lot less atmospheric noise to reject. So you don't need um, the noise rejection uh, mechanism of a beverage at those frequencies. You can put up dipole arrays or a tribander and get much better performance. So if you're going to go out hunting Sirius DX on, say, 160 or 80 meters, and you have the land, uh, a beverage mm -hmm. is a good investment. Yes, it, and it was, um, and it, it still is. It, it has been for 100 years. Uh, i got to say the world's largest um, uh, antenna ever was a multiple square mile array of beverages in Maine. Wow. And uh, I believe this is uh, referenced in the article, but it was rather enormous. And um, 
uh, I think it was uh, six square miles, three or six square miles, with thousands of feet of these beverages lined up side by side in order to make an array of these things. So they were all aimed at um, Europe, uh, where the other end of the transatlantic circuit was. The transmitter was someplace else. You don't transmit through these things. So they had one station for receiving and one station for transmitting, and that was very common and actually still is today on HF. Well, this being the centennial, uh, and me being unable to avoid a pun, I suppose it's time to raise a beverage, to beverage. Ah, and, <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, there you go, we have to quaff a beverage here. Um, the, uh, the, the beverage has been around for a long time. Uh, it's like the rhombic. It's one of these antennas that has a lot of mythology associated with it, and uh, and it works well. So does the rhombic, um, but... Um, you know, it, you have to have a friendly local farmer or you have to own a, a little property or, uh, you know, if you can put up something 500 feet long, um, you can do yourself a lot of good on 80 and 160. And a lot of guys will uh, in the farm country will make arrangements to put a beverage out in the fall after the crops are in and then reel it back in uh, in the springtime uh, when it's planting season. But Luckily, the farming season and the DX low-band DXing seasons don't overlap much. So That's true. That's how they do it. Well, thank you very much, Ward. Excellent article and a great interview. Thank you. Well, thank you, and also thank you to Frank Donovan, uh, W3LPL, who uh, contributed a great amount to the article and is just uh, a wealth of knowledge. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.